1: hello and welcome to this latest episode of the energy insiders podcast my name is giles parkinson i'm the editor of renew economy and joining me as usual is david leach from itk services david i trust you are well and as sleep deprived as i am i'm um, having watched um, way too many matches in the world cup over the last couple of weeks uh, giles well
2: you and i are soccer tragics uh however i have to say electricity is so exciting uh, that uh, I actually <laughs> you laugh? No, not laughing. I'm I, uh... laughing with you,
1: David. I'm laughing with you. No, 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 absolutely.
2: <laughs> and to be honest, I had such low expectations of the Australian team that, I, uh, anyway, that have all been disproven and shown that once again, I know nothing about nothing. But look, um, as I, 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 I watched the match on replay, because I was so excited to be doing an interview with our guest today, Ben Haley from Evolved. Uh, energy in in the United States, who's also done some work in Australia, as it turns out. Uh, And we were talking about the US Inflation Reduction Act, which is one of a massive piece of legislation. So, Giles, it's a great interview.
1: Okay, let's have a listen to um, your interview with Ben Haley from Evolved Energy, earlier today.
2: Ben Haley, co-founder of Evolved Energy. Uh, Thanks for talking to Energy Insiders.
3: Very happy to be here, David.
2: Um, some of our uh, audience, uh, I only came across Evolved uh, Energy uh, about a year or so ago when I was looking for an up-to-date uh, outlook on the uh, carbon abatement curve uh, beyond what McKinsey used to do, and I came across the Evolved Energy one, which I was very impressed with, and then I've been looking at uh, the inflation in, uh, reduction. Actually, could you tell me a little bit about Evolved Energy, uh, how it got started, how big it is, and what its, what its mission in life is?
3: Sure, uh, absolutely. So we are uh, an energy consulting firm uh, with a with a focus on energy system transformation. So you know, we did we started in conventional electricity planning uh, seven years ago. We realized sort of electricity was central to the broader decarbonization problem facing the energy industry. We started our own company, my like co founder and I, um, and we have built techno economic models uh, of energy system transformation. Um, And so obviously an energy system that runs on, you know, renewables and things like that is going to be fundamentally different uh, than an energy system that runs on fossil energy. Uh, And so we needed basically to develop tools uh, in order to analyze that. And that's what we've done. And we've used those tools uh, for a variety of clients, uh, including national governments. Uh, You know, we're going to talk about the IRA today. We've done a lot of work with um, basically Congress and, in analyzing potential policy proposals in the US. But we've also worked with state governments and technology companies and NGOs, Um, basically anyone who has sort of that eye to the future uh, and kind of wants to understand some of the implications of the choices that we we potentially have, um, we work with.
2: Yeah, Ben, and I I, I think um, the the main tool is a a, a rapid, I mean, maybe you could just talk about the tools uh, just a little bit without, uh, yeah.
3: Yeah, so we we build basically economy wide models uh, and our, you know, claim to whatever small amount of fame that we have uh, is that, you know, we're one of the first ones to basically do a very highly resolved uh, temporal and spatial representation of decarbonized energy systems across the whole economy. Um, So basically we study everything together. We study fuels, we study electricity, we study uh, sequestration, we study, you know, all of those types of things in one uh, basically linear optimization model. Um, and so, you know, our focus is on making these systems basically as real as possible from a physical standpoint um, so that we can sort of accl- accurately reflect uh, constraints uh, in energy systems and some of the economics of, of deeply decarbonized energy systems. So that's, you know, that's our focus analytically. Um, and once we have that tool set, you know, we often deploy it in kind of creative ways. And you said you ran across the kind of Mac- uh, 2.0 that we developed um, that's sort of one of the ways that we've we've used that modeling platform um, to kind of look at these questions
2: and so I'm only a humble uh, uh, investment banking research analyst to building uh, company models uh, and playing around with the electricity price model here in Australia but uh, what do you could cons- how confident are you in the sort of uh, outcomes of the modelers? No, you know, models are very difficult to understand right. from anyone except the person who actually builds them. And they're normally most models are dependent on input assumptions one way or another. And uh, I just wondered how you personally think about the robustness of your own model.
3: Yeah. So for the most part, uh, in almost all of our analytical exercises, um, we are focused on basically system dynamics uh, and kind of emergent behavior that arises out of the application of these models to certain questions. We don't generally use these for basically forecasting purposes, which, you know, is a fundamental difference than, you know, a lot of modeling platforms. What we're really interested in uh, is basically, you know, getting the fidelity on the actual dynamics and then running sensitivities and running scenarios to basically illustrate those dynamics um, to folks. And you know, we obviously use outputs and results uh, and we show outputs and results, um, but I think the value add that we bring is really in the description of what's happening in the system and some of the trade-offs basically that we face in decarbonization. Um, and so you know, that's where our kind of focus is analytically, because as you said, a lot of these are dependent on input assumptions. There are certain things Uh, And certain outcomes that are extremely robust to kind of a broad range of input assumptions. But there are some things that we just have to acknowledge. You know, we know what we don't know in terms of technology costs and, you know, resource availability and social acceptance of certain strategies and things like that. And in those cases, we have to take scenario approaches. We have to do sensitivities. um, And we do our best, you know, this is, you know, this is a challenge that we face, but we do our best not to. Uh, reflect things as, as kind of forecasts, um, because because it is it is very much uh, a result of inputs for the most part in some of those forecasts.
2: Well, well as I say, I, I like what I've seen so far, but uh, uh, so let's just, pr- pr- you know, the big, uh, you know, uh, speaking as an Australian, there have been two big events this year for me. One is the uh, Euro 55. Uh, legislation where we had a guest on a week or two back talking about, and that's great. And the other one is in the United States with the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, you know, it seems to me that this is two things. It, it, it does a lot for um, uh, decarbonisation in the United States. I think your modelling suggests about an additional billion tonnes per year. And I think there's a second effect, uh, which is also of a lot of interest to everyone around the world, and uh, to re- to put my economist hat on, to be, uh, see American re-emerging in a kind of protectionist way by emphasising the domestic side of things. But why don't you talk a little bit about the Act uh, and, and what it means to you as a modeller?
3: Sure. Um... So, as I said, we, we participated for about a year and a half in sort of various, uh, various roles in trying to model potential um, policy proposals. There has been a huge evolution uh, in the Inflation Reduction Act sort of from where it started and, and where it ended up. Um, the way I would describe the Inflation Reduction Act uh, sort of as a modeler and also just for people maybe unfamiliar with its overall structure is that it is full of carrots. Uh, but you have to really try hard to find a stick. Uh, that's a reflection of, um, I would say, domestic politics. Uh, you know, basically, tax credits and incentives are really popular. Um, things like clean energy standards and things like that uh, and and mandates are not. Uh, and so that is, you know, very much reflected in the bill. Um, it does a very good job, you know, at least from our modeling exercises, uh, in basically maintaining the U.S. on, on uh, close to a net zero pathway in energy through 2030. Um, it focuses on kind of all the right areas. It hits all the right notes. Uh, it deploys electricity basically as fast as we can. Uh, it deploys electric vehicles basically as fast as we can. And so we're really in a regime now in the United States that, Basically, any renewable power plant that can be sited and any electric vehicle that can be basically um, produced, will be bought, um, or will be purchased through, you know, a power purchase agreement on the electricity side. So, so basically, it is adequately incenting decarbonization in a lot of the key areas. Um, and uh, uh, yeah,
2: so Ben, I, I think just to. Uh, Just to run through it, I've heard it described as having uh, uh, four different buckets. One is around um, uh, um, advanced manufacturing, another one around hydrogen and carbon capture, one about EVs, which is I think is all around the world, and another one about renewable energy. And I looked at your modeling, and I think it said that uh, you you expected as a result of this act that wind and solar capacity, which has been growing at something, I don't know, 40 gigawatts a year might suddenly expand to 100 gigawatts a year and even up to 200 uh, for a while. Mm. And I think this has been done by extending the production or investment tax credit, uh, which is basically uh, essentially the government will actually give you a tax refund more or less. You don't even have to have a fancy structure or you can sell the tax credit as well. Uh, Am I explaining it right? (laughs)
3: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, the big kind of emissions wins and the big sort of transformational changes to the energy system are exactly what you basically said. So, first, uh, electric vehicles, uh, they are, they've basically extended the tax credits. There are certain new, you know, income restrictions. But in general, you know, electric vehicle tax credits uh, incent basically the transformation of, of passenger vehicle travel um, through the mid 2030s. It's sort of, you know, at least from an economic perspective, it's basically the nail in the coffin of internal combustion engines. Um, the second piece that you said uh, in terms of clean hydrogen uh, and carbon capture, um, specifically clean hydrogen is extremely generous uh, in terms of the tax credit. Um, a lot of that is intended to be market transformation, but eventually you know, that incents kind of the development of a clean hydrogen industry in a country that basically doesn't have any at the moment. Um, and really sets kind of the United States up as a potential player, even, you know, even potentially for export uh, of clean hydrogen. Um, carbon capture, uh, the incentives are applied kind of across all sectors that could capture carbon, but they're specifically generous in the in the form of direct air capture, um, which gets a specific carve out in terms of a higher, uh, a higher uh, credit. Um, and so we can easily see that developing kind of a direct air capture industry in the US and basically providing, you know, technology transformation uh, incentives. Um, And we also see the application of carbon capture industry rather significantly. And then the big one uh, is in the form of a clean electricity tax credit, as you noted, most of that going to wind and solar. Um, And basically, you know, as I said, it is, it won't be for lack of adequate economic incentives that we aren't able to achieve some of those emissions reductions. It will basically be a function of, uh, supply chain, um, and, you know, development and deployment constraints, um, that are difficult to model, but are kind of easily anticipated when we're trying to ramp up our wind and solar deployment, you know, three, four, five times, um, by the 2030s. Um, you know, I think as you, talked about kind of the fit for 55 i think europe's going to basically face the same challenges in that they will have adequate incentives and they already do in terms of their fuel prices adequate incentives to deploy renewables, and it will really become a matter of how fast we can go um and yeah
2: and i think how fast we can go is certainly in a very emerging uh question and no amount of tax credits is really going to buy uh, social license uh, for new transmission and stuff like that. And and that's an important issue that uh, maybe if we get time, we'll come back to. But I just wanted to talk about the other side of it, which is the, I guess, the way the tax credits work. As I I read about it, there are adders. That is, you can get bigger tax credits if you do additional things, uh, which particularly in this case, mostly relate to manufacturing in the United States or in the case of uh, uh, carbon capture and stuff, if you've actually put your, um, or, or even your wind farm or do something at an existing coal or gas plant, you, you can get more credits than if you uh, put it out in the Nevada desert or something, uh, if I'm not reading it right. I just wanted to talk about the cars for a minute. The tax credit is like a 7600 US dollars, as I recall. Uh, and lasts uh, for the next 10 years, and you can get a 4,000 credit for a second-hand car, which is uh, also terrific. But uh, as I understand it, the car has to be assembled in North America, and the harder part, I guess, is that the battery and the minerals uh, have to be can't come from countries like China, whereas if I look at EVs, most of the uh, batteries these days are actually made in China. I just wondered, I guess, What? how do you think about that? And am I talking about it right as well?
3: Yeah, you absolutely are. So the, the IRA and kind of the nature of it, it clearly set up basically kind of demand side provisions to influence uh, basically the location of production facilities and manufacturing within the United States. Uh, it did so in the form of basically tax credit adders, as you noted, um, so, for example, um, you know the uh, on the renewable side, you know the share of certain components that come from the U.S. allows for eligibility for this additional sort of ten percent tax credit. Um, and so there are incentives like that, and incentives, as you said, on the EV side um, for you know assembly in the United States, and also you know related to basically the batteries and that supply chain. I think it's important to You know, I would say it's important to reflect that the time at which the IRA passed and the time that we're in now, I think, you know, there is an element uh, of protectionism, you know, as traditionally understood in terms of, you know, trying to incent green jobs in the US. But I think the actual intent of this was actually much broader and relates to basically two two sets of circumstances, one, uh, which is COVID, which obviously we saw huge supply chain disruptions with that. The second is Russia um, and obviously basically the weaponization of energy supply. Um, I think in that context, it's important to basically understand these domestic provisions really as they relate to national security, as much as they relate to basically jobs. Um, And so I think the onshoring of things like critical minerals, the onshoring of supply chains and batteries, the onshoring of supply chains in renewal production, um, is really related to sort of, uh, you know, a reaction to, uh, a reaction to globalization and sort of the circumstances that we arrived in. Uh, I agree. It's
2: a reaction to globalization, yeah. and, and and the Economist in me wants to say that not everyone benefits equally from free trade. But overall, there's a there's a net benefit, and and to the extent that you restrict free trade, um, then there will be be costs. But and specifically. Ben, I guess, I, you know, you've mentioned on the actual uh, supply constraint, in a sense, uh, there's enough carrots, mm-hmm. but but, you know, can we actually do it? And I'm just asking curiously uh, whether you think the emphasis on doing it within the USA is actually going to, in reality, introduce more friction?
3: Well, I think, you know, I think it has the opportunity. I think it has the opportunity to basically uh slow deployment specifically in the early years potentially um you know it, as compared to a counterfactual where we provided the full tax credit and the adder to 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 basically EVs or renewables from wherever they come right i do think that basically you know in that counterfactual yes there are obviously existing supply chains in other countries that could more easily supply those um you know, those components, and you could basically see some amount of friction and a slower deployment in the early years. Uh, I think that that's a possibility. Yes, I think the question is whether that was ever a real possibility, or those become additional, in the sense that, you know, the alternative was basically the, the base tax credit, and those adders not existing. And then in that case, you know, if it is slow from a domestic manufacturing and domestic deployment standpoint, then there's nothing basically restricting the ability of some of those other countries, they're just not being, you know, additionally incented. I think that's the like, I think that's the idea is that there is some still flexibility in where these things come from. It's just that if you're able to onshore some of that, you know, manufacturing, um, then you get those additional tax credits. And likely, you know, a lot of those tax credits will basically go towards potentially paying the additional cost of bringing some of that, you know, into the country. And I think basically the IRA, Uh, acknowledges that as an additional cost that they're willing to bear to sort of get that outcome. I think, you know, I think the other thing to note is just in some of the comments of other countries, uh, you know, in terms of uh, sort of how the IRA ultimately gets implemented, I think there's a general acknowledgement of kind of the national security angle. So you see a lot of comments about, you know, wanting to maintain relationships kind of amongst the d- democracies basically um, so you know Europe South Korea have have made comments in terms of the EV tax credit where it's sort of like you know we understand why you want to do this but maybe we could you know sneak under the tent a little bit uh, and allow that you know allow that extension of the tax credit to maybe you know more countries than you're allowing right now so um, there's still like, there's
2: no like a, deal, a deal is done and then the real discussion starts is that what you're saying? Yeah.
3: I think there, I, you know, I don't know how much license there is to basically, you know, creatively interpret that. Um, But I do think that, uh, you know, like anything, like any domestic bill that basically interacts with international trade, there's going to be a negotiation at some level. You know, whether that becomes a trade dispute of some sort, like, we'll, I think we'll eventually find out. Um, But yes, the deal was done. Yes.
2: Yeah, so in Europe they've got the carbon border tax, and here even here in humble Australia, where you know we're lucky if we can manufacture a haircut, uh, 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 <laughs> there's, there's still talk about domestic uh, manufacturing. And you know, I think about the wind industry, for instance, where a lot of the turbine manufacturers, the European ones, are all unprofitable at the moment, mm. and uh, no one outside of China is wanting to buy Chinese wind turbines anymore, and so. I just wonder how that's going to work if they have to set up manufacturing facilities in, in the United States, but we can, we've can we talked a bit about that. I also wanted to ask you an, another kind of sort of left field question, which is just uh, as a modeler, how you think about tax incentives, which is the way the United States is, has always gone. And I actually mm-hmm. think works quite well uh, in practice. Um, uh, as compared to say a carbon tax that Europe has or other kind of policy mechanisms that we like direct mandating fuel standards, for instance, just generally how you think that the tax incentive w- w- works as a policy instrument?
3: I think that the tax incentive maps really well to current US domestic politics. I think it's generally a more difficult target to hit um for the opposition um because it's you know it's not money that you've collected that that you then need to figure out how to distribute right it's sort of money that you never collected and so you don't have to make those decisions quite the same way Um, you know i think from a uh from a so from a political standpoint it just makes you know a Thousand times more sense than the U.S. to go the tax credit route, to go the carrot route, um, and to basically not get into some of the allocational issues uh, that arise out of you know collecting carbon taxes and and, and things like that. Um, the The other thing that it does that you know potentially has some advantages is it does provide some level of certainty for some of these investments, specifically in the on the electricity side, um, that. You know, a carbon tax, you know, may or may not, um, depending on how it's implemented. So, you know, cap and trade might, you know, you might see some volatility, um, you know, a carbon tax that kind of adjusts and, and in some way. You might see some level of uncertainty for investment in an asset, you know, that has a lifetime of 30 to, you know, 40 years. Um, so some of that volatility avoidance is also somewhat valuable on the, on the tax credit side. Um, but, you know, we lose some, you know, we lose some amount of efficiency in terms of basically intersectoral allocations. So, you know, we, we make all these choices and they did quite well in terms of basically, I would say the level of incentives applied to different areas of the economy. As I said, it lines up pretty well with what we would want to do from an optimal kind of modeling standpoint. You know, we do a lot of modeling where we don't, have those tax credits, we're just trying to go for a purely economically optimal solution. Uh, and really, if you kind of squint at the IRA, it's not very different from that. Um, you know, there's some additional technology transformation. But in general, you know, those incentive levels are set uh, pretty well. Um, and so if there is basically certainty, at some level of what you need to do, and there is in the sense that you need electrified transformation, you know, de- de- decarbonize electricity, uh, and those end up being kind of the biggest, you know, single levers in the IRA. Um, so, so, then so doing let's, just,
2: it let's just talk about them for a second, Ben, the, the wind and the solar. It's, the, it's kind of if we leave, put the EVs to one side, the, 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 yeah. the biggest thing that jumps out at me is the is the growth in wind and solar. And, and, mm-hmm. and looking at what I see happening in Australia I, I, makes me want to ask questions about transmission and, and firming mm-hmm. and stuff. But I just want to talk about the wind and solar itself. Why in the model does that does, does the um, installation rate you know treble and quadruple quite quite quickly? What, what actually drives that in the act that wasn't, because you had investment tax, production tax credits before, didn't you really? Or is it just the duration of them? What makes it grow so no, quickly?
3: Yeah, so we were in a regime where basically the production tax credit um, was expired uh, and the investment tax, at least for some resources, in the investment tax credit had declined Uh, in solar. Uh, And so basically, this extends that, it extends that into a regime of declining renewable costs, and it extends it in a, it extends it in basically a flat manner. So what you have is renewable costs continuing to decline, a production tax credit uh, that doesn't decline, and actually, can start getting applied to solar, where previously it was only the investment tax credit applied to solar. And so, effectively, what you start to see is, you know, in terms of a PPA price, you start to see, you know, forty percent, fifty percent reductions um, in in that basically levelized cost of electricity when you take into account that production tax credit. Um, and so, effectively, you know, you're in a regime where you've halved the cost of renewables in some cases. Uh, for purchasers. um, And then suddenly, you know, that that price against even just running a gas plant or running a coal plant starts to be competitive, as opposed to previously where, you know, you'd have to maybe displace the capacity of some of those things, just running it uh, and basically displacing that energy becomes cost competitive when you take into account the production tax credit. Um, And so that really basically turbocharges the deployment.
2: So, so what are we talking about uh, LCOEs or as I would like to think of them long run marginal costs of about right. prices of about what US $30 a megawatt hour or so 35? No,
3: with with production tax credit, we're talking LCOEs in the 10 to $15 a megawatt hour range in some cases at the lowest end, um, Jeez. but that's, yeah, that's pretty yeah. exciting, so, isn't yeah.
2: it? You know, I mean, yeah, that, that, what, that...
3: yeah. sorry, yeah, no, no, it, it, it really is and you can, I mean, you know, you're, you were saying what, what the model is excited basically is what we see. And that's like effectively the model wants to build it as fast as you let it. Um, because that production tax credit is generous enough, you know, renewable costs have declined enough. Uh, and the resource availability in the United States is exceptionally good. And so you kind of combine all those factors with a reasonable, you know, natural gas price forecast, which is elevated from a few years ago. And suddenly basically you're in a regime where, you know, we're getting out of, you know, we're getting out of burning gas and coal almost as fast as we can.
2: Now, what about the uh, so US 10 to 15? Because I must say here in Australia, we've also got a good resource. But what we have seen for a variety of reasons this year in calendar 2022 is a 30% increase in costs, mm-hmm. uh, whether you look at wind or solar or, or, or batteries. Uh, and no matter how good your learning rate is, it takes, takes a few years to get that 30% back again. Um, I guess when I think about it, all that growth in wind and solar, it will require more growth in, in transmission and also in firming. The IRA doesn't do that much either for, say, batteries or pumped hydro or transmission does it really?
3: It does have a tax credit uh, for storage. Um, it doesn't specifically incent uh, transmission. That was one of the provisions actually they got left out. Um, there was a transmission incentive, um, but to be honest, in you know in our analysis, the problem, the transmission problem, is not an economic one. And so you know there's basically you know all of the transmission is economic even at the price that we think it will be. Um, and the real problem basically is kind of the stickiness in terms of deployment. It's basically siting, it's permitting, it's all those types of things. The U.S. lags behind almost everyone uh, in terms of uh, permitting and siting timelines. Uh, There is, you know, discussion uh, about siting reform um, kind of working its way through uh, the U.S. government now. You know, the prospects for that, you know, who knows? Um, But there is an acknowledgement that basically money isn't going to solve that issue there are basically kind of regulatory processes that need to be updated and improved um and basically permitting needs to be fast-tracked and all sorts of things um to basically accelerate the deployment timelines because yeah all of these things stand in the way of getting all that wind and solar um i think the economics of of balancing that wind and solar are actually quite good from the ira from the perspective of it does incent batteries uh, and it also incents clean hydrogen to the extent that, you know, if one of the principal issues uh, is, is actually overgeneration, right, we have too many renewables at a certain time, um, then those clean hydrogen provisions and the deployment of electrolyzers are actually one of the best solutions to that. Um, so, you know, it doesn't go to 100% clean electricity because the economics aren't there, even with the production tax credits, but it gets into the, you know, it gets into the upper 70s, low 80s, which is just not where we would have been without it. Um, yep. So we don't reach the the worst of the balancing problems uh, and the balancing problems we do hit uh, are kind of adequate incentive, I think.
2: Yeah, it's pretty hard to be the worst, uh, I might say, at, at um, uh, planning, um, at least uh, <laughs> because around yeah. the world it seems to take, you know, seven or eight years to get uh, planning for a new wind farm, for instance, uh, in what I've seen so far. I mean, you have to do, you know, often a year or two of bird studies and that sort of things. and I guess you know also we've seen in Europe and certainly in Australia that renewable energy zones uh, as this kind of way to um, mm-hmm. a- approach that process, uh, to improve it. Uh, you, that's a different sort of topic to what we're on today, but just might quickly ask, uh, uh, before we get to the end of what we're talking about, uh, how, how you, you must be seeing some of that in the USA as well.
3: Yeah, we absolutely are. Uh, basically, you know, we do a lot of land use studies actually, you know, so we do, we do these energy system analyses consistent with some of the land use constraints that you raise. And, and, you know, it is an opportunity to basically for stakeholders to understand some of the choices. I think in general, in general, the environmental community has come around to the idea that the, you know, most important thing is deploying, some of this wind and solar, you know, with appropriate cautions applied to, you know, just not unfettered development. But I think the idea basically is that they can be proactive. And so they are undertaking a lot of studies. They are basically kind of trying to push jurisdictions to, you know, not just, you know, have developers be leading this charge, but to actually, you know, incorporate uh, kind of social license in the form of a lot more stakeholders Uh, And then have developers respond to kind of the edicts of of where we want to put, you know, renewable energy as a society, because at the scale that we're talking, you know, there are necessarily trade offs and they come in very different forms uh, in terms of types of land that's that, you know, we want to basically open up for renewable development um, in terms of the type of communities that we want to basically incent renewable development to flow towards. Um, And so, yeah, this is a social choice uh, that we have to make. And, you know, at the scale that we're talking, uh, you know, if we don't make it, I think the risk is, uh, that we have kind of a, a kind of broad reaction to this unfair development, uh, or we just do it really poorly and, and, and get kind of inefficient outcomes, either economically or socially.
2: Um, yeah, 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 so I so I guess you in your model you build in some kind of constraint as to how much wind is actually possible to be built built in a year but let's let's not talk about that. I'm actually I suppose more interested, you know, as as someone that looks at these things globally and I look mm-hmm. at a country like Japan and their cost of energy, you know, and why they're so slow to decarbonize is because they're mm-hmm. worried about becoming even more relatively less competitive, if I, um, you know, if they have to switch to hydrogen or something. But it seems to me like U.S. manufacturing, when it here's about ten to fifteen dollars, you know, if you're an aluminium or or or, or a, a, um, a plastics or someone like that, you, those those must be quite attractive numbers to you as, as a manufacturer in general. Never never mind uh, anything else.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the interesting things is basically the IRA uh, energy system costs come down. I mean, it's not surprising, but basically we take a lot of basically the, uh, payment for energy off of private books and put it onto the public ledger. Uh, and so in the form of tax credits, you know, we're basically subsidizing all energy consumers. And so, you know, as you said, like electricity prices going down, right. That's a thing that, that that's a thing that's potentially exciting, at least on the generation side. Um, And so it is a huge transfer basically from private consumers to, um, to kind of the the tax rolls or the government basically um, in, in terms of avoided, avoided uh, taxes collected. And so, yeah, we actually see energy costs coming down. You would hope that that would have basically some, uh, some effect on kind of promoting domestic manufacturing. Um, But the U S already has pretty attractive energy costs, right? A lot of their, uh, industrial growth is driven by kind of low natural gas prices. Um, and so, you know, this is just another form where, you know, potentially the US has a competitive advantage in terms of energy prices. Um, so, yeah, I can I can imagine it having an impact there.
2: Yeah. So I, I, this is the thing, you know, when you look at it, uh, China's the most energy intensive large economy in the world by far, and it's all coal based and they're you know, Mm. consuming something like four and a half billion tons of coal a year now. And that has to be very uncompetitive on straight economics, I think, as time goes on. I mean, uh, uh, as it has to try and compete with essentially lower uh, energy cost systems uh, like the USA and I think Australia will be able to have. Ben, is there anything else that any other points that you that you wanted to make, are you, are, you, are you planning on doing anything down here in um, Australia at any stage? Well, I suppose the United States is large enough to keep any any organization going for a little while.
3: It, it is, but uh, funny you should say that we um, did the modeling behind um, the Net Zero Australia report, which actually was a uh, follow up to our Net Zero America project. Um, and so um, we actually did quite a lot of uh, Modeling and analysis um, for that project. I believe draft results have been released, and, and final results will be coming this spring. But um, Australia is in such an interesting position in terms of, you know, being a fossil energy exporter and imagining a future as potentially a decarbonized fuel exporter. And what does that mean for, you know, all of the things that we're talking about in terms of land use, uh, social license of decarbonization, all of those types of things. So that's been really interesting. We've also done a lot of work in in Europe. So that fit for fifty five. Um, you know, I'm very familiar with that. I think, you know, one thing I would say is, um, I think let's not understate the the impact that the IRA might make in terms of lowering technology costs. Um, hopefully, for everyone in the long term, um, right? We know that a lot of these technologies are at the early stages of their learning curves. This is basically government um, buying them at that point. Uh, and hopefully buying down those costs um, and ultimately you know that will have benefits for everyone and that is you know a large part of kind of the contribution the U.S. can make towards deep decarbonization uh, is buying down those technology costs, making those technologies lower cost and, and available to other countries um, that you know wouldn't, wouldn't go this route uh, unless that kind of green premium did come down. And so, you know, hopefully there are knock-on effects of this past just kind of our pure emissions accounting within, you know, the U.S. borders and how does that relate to the, you know, uh, nationally determined contributions and things like that. It, I think this bill is big enough, um, I think, uh, to have an impact around the world uh, in that sense. Um, and so I think we're pretty hopeful uh, on that. Yeah, end. yeah.
2: Yeah, I, I, you make a very good point, point. Uh, one I'd already uh noted that you know that uh, you know the learning rate depends on the global rate of production and you know uh the old motto of think global act local and uh is remains as true as ever and there's no question that the usa uh uh is not uh a done, not a fading force just yet or maybe um right. and what it does is, is is very very important ben haley from involved energy thanks very much for talking to energy insiders there's a host of topics i i never got to but there's uh I feel for our listeners, there's only so much electricity we can ever talk at one time. And uh, thanks again.
3: Appreciate it, David. Thank you.
1: And that was uh, Ben Haley from Evolved Energy Um, in the US. um, The Inflation Reduction Act, certainly, David's going to have a lot of implications for what's happening, um, not just in the US, I mean, talking about the sort of, you know, the ability to deliver wind and solar at such low prices also has implications on what's happening in Australia. I think um, both Fortescue and uh, Quinbrook have been talking about this in the last couple of um, weeks saying that it really puts the pressure on Australia and other areas, Europe, to kind of match that otherwise the US will be so far ahead of the rest of the world um, and will dominate this this nascent and um, ever-hyped hydrogen economy.
2: Yeah, yeah, US ten to fifteen dollars uh, for uh, uh, PPA prices um, for wind and solar is is certainly very exciting to consumers of electricity. I would have thought uh, there's up to two hundred uh, million tons of abatement that they are aiming for. I think in in carbon capture, uh, which I don't, uh, you know, is something for the future. And the other side of it is the ten-year uh, incentive of seven and a half US thousand dollars. Uh, for EVs. But to get that, you have to um, assemble the car in the United States. And you also can't be getting your uh, lithium or your battery from a, um, uh, what do they call it, a a, a critical country, which basically means Russia and China. And so since two of the world's, and we didn't talk about this, but since two of the world's largest uh, lithium producers, BYD and and Cattle, C-A-T-L, uh, are Chinese-based, um, you know, I, I do think it's going to have some big implications going forward. It also means that um, there's a tremendous incentive for manufacturers as this, that, and the other thing to start doing things in the United States, and this is kind of a global trend as far as I can see towards uh, getting away from free trade and trying to do everything in, in the country for, for various reasons. Uh, security and jobs seem to go hand in hand. So. There's a lot to think about it, Giles, and we've yet to see it play out. But I guess the key point is that in terms of wind and solar, uh, we, you know the US has been um, constructing about 40 gigawatts a year, and that's expected to go to 100, 150, 200 gigawatts over a year over the next five or six years, and you know that will benefit everyone because it will uh, see learning rates, you know, and, and cost reductions uh, come through as from the higher volumes. It's going
1: to be interesting because Australia keeps on talking about and dreaming of trying to sort of repeat the success of the US and other countries and becoming a manufacturer, not just simply sort of exporting sort of, you know, minerals and digging things up. Now, of course, um, it's um, into the future, um, the coal and the gas exports will dry up and maybe they'll be replaced by the critical minerals and the whole battery chain. But, you know, there seems to be an ambition to go beyond that. We've seen the um, new um, fund being launched by the Labor government has three billion dollars set aside in a CFC-type fund, which will sort of, you know, um, direct funds towards supporting local manufacturer of, um, you know, things for solar and wind, if not the whole thing, and, and battery storage. But there was a survey by Bloomberg NEF just a couple of weeks ago, just sort of pointing out how far Australia has actually fallen down in the battery chain still yeah all the minerals you could possibly want but still really very very little in terms of sort of added value and i guess that's going to be the challenge in the future and i don't think we can match those low prices um david i i suspect that the um the prices for wind and solar in australia um, for, for new ppas has gone up quite considerably from the low point of a couple of years ago
2: uh, and that's, Charles, because there are no incentives. The reason those prices are going to be as low as they are in the United States is basically because of the way the tax system works. It's, uh, you get very large, uh, effective tax deductions, and the way the Act has been written, you can actually, uh, um, in some cases, just if you can't take advantage of the uh, tax deduction, some institutions will actually be able to get the government to just write them a cheque as if they were paying ticks tax And in other ones they will just be able to, in the past when Infogen had most of its assets listed in the United States, you have, used to have this thing called tax equity, which was a complicated structure to share the benefits around between you know like a, a bank or someone that had tax that to, to, it to, to, to wanted to uh, reduce uh, and a company like Infogen that, that, that didn't was generating the tax credits but didn't have any uh, taxable profits. Now you'll be able to sell your, under the NEW Act, you can just straight out sell your tax deduction to anyone that wants to buy it. So, there's a, look, there's, all of this has got a lot to play out for, but my point is that uh, really the, the tax deduction system in the United States, which we can compare with the carbon price in Europe, Australia doesn't have either of those things. We've got a lot of intention and a great resource, but other than the REC price, uh, which is still high, but uh, has a definite sunset on it, we, we don't, and, and there's no support for batteries, for instance. Uh, um, uh, we, 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 we don't have, in my opinion, uh, as clever a system as the United States has come up with. Uh, it is all carrot in the United States and no stick. Uh, but my experience is people like carrots, Giles. I don't know about you. <laughs>
1: well, greater carrots than my salad I like very much. Um, look, it's interesting you say that, and that, um, hence the cause, I think, sort of from, from, from many parties for some sort of um, energy storage target, um, now clearly, um, states like Victoria and New South Wales and Queensland have all have come up with their own individual schemes to sort of try and um, ensure that some storage is built. But um, it's sort of you know it's sort of really different from state to state, which is sort of pretty confusing. We probably need more of a national program, but I'm not too sure we're going to get any national programs the way that we're um, going at the moment. Um, David, this been well, just ordinate. talking about
2: national programs, Giles. I mean, you know, you raise that, but of course we've got this terrific fight over gas and coal uh, price caps. Uh, what do you have any uh, thoughts about that, or, or, or should we just leave it for another time?
1: Well, we won't wait until we've actually sort of got it confirmed. But look, um, I'd actually be very interested in your view, David. On um, a really. Uh, I've been too busy sort of doing other things to think about it too deeply enough, apart from sort of thinking that um, it might be a short term political decision, but no one seems to like it, um, apart from a few big consumers. And there's probably a smarter way of going around this. Uh, I would have thought a windfall tax um, on super gas profits and sort of plowing it back into consumers but like a price cap, um, the gas producers don't like it, and most of the states don't seem to like it. I don't think anyone in the renewable industry really likes it because they think it sort of delays the sort of inevitable transition to renewables. So can you think of a reason why we should have it, David? Uh,
2: no, and I think uh, I, I think it's a poor outcome myself. Uh, uh, you know, Basically why the states don't like it is they lose royalties. If you're Queensland and... Uh, and uh and producing a lot of gas and suddenly there's a a cap on the price of gas, well, they get their royalties on the wellhead value, so it's it's different. But in, in New South Wales, if you put a price on uh a cap on the price of coal, then New South Wales will lose coal royalties, and the same in Queensland. So Victoria doesn't mind. They don't have any royalties to worry about. <laughs> you know, it's a nutty way of doing it. It's just uh, in, in, in my opinion. And I don't actually really personally approve of reservations. I'm a bit more of an old school, uh, fairly uh, economist that thinks that markets uh, are actually a good way to do things in the long run, and they sort things out. But people don't trust markets. They, they always think government intervention uh, will produce a better result. They don't trust consumers to be able to work things out for and producers to work things out for themselves, and
1: uh, well, that whilst, whilst the, themes the market... The... No, oh, sorry, well, I've just interrupted you there, David. Sorry about that. Well, no, I mean, I don't think consumers sort of trust the energy industry at all at the moment. It was quite fascinating to see, firstly, a um, result of a consumer survey that came out, I think it was from the Energy Consumers Association. Uh, also, energy Consumers Australia which just, you know, just the lack of faith in energy utilities from consumers. And then the extraordinary scene after the um, Victorian state election victory for La- for the Labor government, and you had people sort of gathered around Daniel Andrews chanting SEC, SEC. Now, for those who don't know, SEC is not a football team or a country, it's a state electricity court, which doesn't actually exist because it was disbanded 20 years ago. But who'd ever thought you'd hear people chanting for a public utility, which will spring back to life. But um,
2: well, you, you, you'd, you'd 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 expect the unions to be cheering for that, and there were probably about two hundred people there. Some of them were were, were cheering, no doubt. But uh, you know this idea, uh, which I've also heard, I, that the big generators, tailors are, are you know ripping people off, or you know, uh, I mean, I I personally find that laughable. You know, has anyone seen the AGL share price or the Origin share price? I mean. Energy Australia had to be totally refinanced, Uh, the coal stations are all closing, there just really hasn't been this massive, uh, or if there has been a (laughs) rip-off, someone someone took all the money (laughs) and went somewhere else with it because it hasn't benefited these companies that are supposed to be doing the, making all the money out of it. I mean, you can criticise the Gentiles for a lot of things, and goodness knows I do, uh, but I, I don't really, it's hard to find evidence that it's resulted in big returns on capital for them, that's just my... Comment.
1: Well, that's the start of a longer conversation. But um, look, we've had that great interview um, with Ben Healy, um, um But we should just wrap up a couple of the other interesting things that happened this week. It's been another week of lots of announcements. And just to sort of run over it, um, we've got the go ahead for the Golden Plains Wind Farm in Victoria. That was sort of hotly contested for a while, but now TAG Energy, which is actually led by Frank Wattier, uh, the former head of NEO in Australia. Um, they've come into, uh, this is their big project in Australia, that's um, Stage 1, 756 megawatts, Stage 2 about the same size, so 1.3 gigawatts, will have a 300 megawatt battery, I think it is, so um, that's a pretty big deal, and going merchant with the assistance of um, CFC and a bunch of other bankers. We've got the McIntyre project. And Giles, just, just,
2: in... j- just just on Golden Plains. Uh, clients will probably, uh, our listeners, sorry, will probably remember that we uh, interviewed uh, Toby Geiger. I can't remember whether it was a year or, uh, or eighteen months ago, and, and he said it was going merchant then, and discussed why. So uh, you know, our listeners will be up with it, and we've got McIntyre doubling in size. You were about to say, I'm sure.
1: Well, yeah, well, actually, let's just talk about merchants. We're sort of double tracking and forward tracking here. But um, obviously, merchants probably a pretty good thing to do at the moment with prices where they are.
2: Uh, look, I think it's very sensible to just build it. If you've got a project and you build it, uh, you know the demand's going to be there. Why lock yourself into a PPA? Well, I mean, the PPA prices are moving around so much. It's just. Uh, mm uh it's it's a very uh, difficult judgment it's quite obviously once the project is built it will be ppa right it's not going to run on merchant forever uh it's just a question of when the deal's done
1: Hmm. and so we've um you started talking also about the doubling of the mcintyre project so that'll create the first sort of two gigawatt project um in australia i mean mcintyre is already the first gigawatt project um, in um, in Australia, it's fascinating to see David how the Sunshine State, Queensland, started off with about 26 solar farms before it started building any wind, and is now going quite big in wind. You've got Cog, sorry, Cooper's Creek. Um, you've got the new McIntyre project. You've got the uh, Caban wind farm being built, um, and there's another one I can't quite remember the name of. It's being built at the moment. Plus Clark's Creek. 440 megawatts first stage and a whole bunch of other projects including sort of you know the sort of various Andrew Forrest sort of blue sky projects multi gigawatts around central Queensland and 10 gigawatts up in the north of the state and I just thought it was really interesting to note too the battery storage facility that's going to be built at the Sapphire Wind Farm in northern New South Wales now it's interesting um, it's been built by CWP Renewables um, the big Australian uh, renewables developer which is now going through a sales process it's uh, so we should be finding out about that soon but this battery project is really interesting it's a small battery part of a 270 megawatt wind farm which is the biggest in New South Wales at the moment the interesting bit is it's being built um, the battery will be included with the wind farm on the same connection point now this is actually quite crucial because it was considered to be too hard for most people to do that because the connection rules and things like that were really difficult and everyone's been "I oh, can't be bothered it's just really really too hard but it's fascinating to see that CWP renewables have actually gone ahead and done that um, I'd actually like to know more about why it is they've done that and how they've done that because I think it'd be a really really interesting thing for the rest of the industry to, to, to learn I mean they'll find out eventually through the um, through the, um, the learnings program which is supported by the New South Wales Emerging Renewables Plan but it is the first battery to be fitted to a pre-existing wind or solar farm sharing the same connection point so it's not oper- operating separately it's actually operating as part of that sort of wind thing and that will enable them to sort of provide firm contracts and things like that so we expect to see more of that and um, I'm not too sure if there's any other news apart from David. I think um, AEMO came out with its engineering uh, roadmap to reach 100% renewables. Now we're talking about 100% renewables for half hour periods or moving into hours and days. Fascinating document, 100 pages kind of seeing where we're at, how close we are at it to now, but the work that AEMO says needs to be done before we actually do get there. And we do hope to have in our next episode, or at least the one after that, an interview with um, one of the senior AEMO people who can walk us through that. So I'm very much looking forward to that interview and we'll dive into it a little bit further at that time.
2: Indeed, Giles. And, you know, uh, my uh, casual read makes me think, as ever, that i has been a bit cautious. Uh, uh, on the pace of change and the, with it, the technology that's available to solve it. But we can, uh, we've, we've talked a lot already today, as usual, Giles, uh, and what a fantastic topic it is. Uh, and uh, fortunately, we can do it a few more times uh, before Christmas, can't we?
1: A couple more times, absolutely. And we'll see if we can actually get to 1 million listens for the 2022 calendar year, which would be a first. And um, much appreciated to all the people out there who listen and enjoy um, the podcast and give us such good feedback. And of course, thank you very much to our sponsors, uh, Pylon and Evergen. Um, Thanks to Ben Haley um, for joining us today in the podcast. Thanks to you, David, for doing that interview. And we'll be back again with another episode of Energy Insiders next week. Bye for now.
0: Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant. Generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole, Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future.